since September of 2008, we've spent, I think, 52 Sunday sermons in Luke. That's not really that much. It's only a little bit more than two per chapter. Today will be the 53rd. And I don't know about you, but I've been blessed. I don't know if it's helped you, but I've been helped by this portion of God's word. I think I see Jesus better, and I think I love him more deeply and understand his glorious redemption of my soul more personally, more intimately. I think I know my need for a Savior more as a result of us thinking about righteous sinners in the gospel according to Luke. So that might be one reason why I'm a little slow for us to move on and interested for us is to do one more week on it. Uh, This week, uh, a summary of the whole book. I don't want us to leave Luke without taking a step back one more time and saying, what was that book about? Now, this message won't seem of particular relevance for Father's Day. Uh, This isn't going to be 12 steps, how to be a better dad or even to how to be a better husband. But I think the summary of Luke is what dads specifically, or men in general, desperately need. I I think what we'll come away with is something that's very appropriate for men here in the church and what we need today as men. So I want to camp out eventually at the end of this on what this means for men, what it means for Father's Day. Of course, that'll be applicable to what it means for women as well and and children, but I want to first think about the big picture of Luke. We frequently need to talk about and think through the big picture. We have a Bible that's 66 books, it's a lot of pages, it's a lot of verses, it's spread out over a lot of time. And we've got the, the Bible here, we often take a, a Sunday morning to go through anywhere from 5 to 25 verses maybe. Maybe it's bigger than that sometimes and smaller than that sometimes. But we take a chunk, and and really, sometimes it feels like, oh, how can we get through this chunk? It's so big, it's so long, it's 30 verses. When we think about the grand scheme of things, the sweep of God's plan, it's a very small slice. We say we can't miss the forest for the trees. We need both forest and we need Trees, right? We need that microscopic investigation, the microscopic lens to get into a verse, to ask what this preposition is, is referring to, to ask what this word modifies or, or how this works, what it's here saying. But we also need to look at the overall plan of God, what he's up to, what, where that book fits in the overall plan of God, and what that book is saying to us in its themes, in its Connected dots throughout the whole book. We can't just trust that in a year and a half or I guess almost two years time of being in Luke that we'll be able to connect 52 dots or 53 dots in a row and say, yeah, okay, I remember all of that. So so how would you summarize Luke? How would you summarize Luke as as a book? What if your kid said, okay, dad, mom, we just went through Luke as a church. What's it about? Uh, what do you say to that? Now, this would make for a great inductive Bible study. If this were a smaller group, it would be great to break off into groups of five or six and you know, to really thumb through the pages, to look for things and, and to compare notes. What are you seeing? What are you thinking? You already see up here on the screen what I think Luke can be summarized as. The man, the message, 
the mission. But just kind of play that back uh, hypothetically, pretending you didn't see this yet. And you had to answer the question, what's Luke about? If your five-year-old asks you that, you might just say, Jesus. Starts with Jesus, ends with Jesus. It's about Jesus. And that would be super right. But that's the 50,000-foot view, right? It's the biggest umbrella you can have on Luke or Matthew, Mark, or John. Really, it's the whole Bible. You could say, what's the Bible about? Jesus. It's a great answer uh, for kids, right? They, whenever, ask, uh, whenever parents ask them a religious kind of question, I don't know, Jesus. Um, you, <laughs> I thought this week, I must be talking too much about hell with my six-year-old son because he kept thinking hell was the answer to every question. <laughs> and that can't be good. So I... So, Hopefully he'll start saying Jesus more. Um, So Jesus is the 50,000 foot view. Maybe you'd say, okay, Luke has a lot of miracles in it. Luke is about miracles. Okay, well that's maybe the 10,000 foot view. What I'm after is maybe something between. 30,000 foot view. Maybe three things you can summarize Luke in. I think the man, the message And the mission would be a a great place to start. That doesn't summarize absolutely everything in Luke. I I realize that. There are large portions of Jesus' teaching that are to his disciples. And they're about their conduct, their holiness. Jesus is teaching them how to handle money. He's teaching them how to care for the poor. He's teaching them how Christians should pray and when it's wrong to divorce. He's teaching them ethics, living. It also doesn't capture his doctrinal teaching about who the Father is and what he's like or what Jesus' return will be like and when that will be, what are the signs of it, or what hell is like or what heaven is like. But I think those things kind of logically come after or even chronologically in some ways come after some of the bigger umbrella issues that you see in Luke of the man, the message, the mission. So there it is. That's the message. Shall we pray and go home? Of course not. You wouldn't get your money's worth. Um, let's, let's go to Luke chapter 1. Let's start there. Luke chapter 1. I want to see how it begins and how the book ends. And then we'll dig into these specific three things. Luke chapter 1, verse 1. It's sort of Luke's introduction to the book, his prolegomena. He says, inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who, from the beginning, were eyewitnesses and servants of the word, it seemed fitting for me as well, as well as Matthew and Mark and John, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order, orderly fashion, most excellent Theophilus, whoever that is, maybe a publisher, maybe just a a Greek believer, so that you may know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. Okay, that's what Luke 1 says about why Luke's writing. Now let's go to the end, Luke 24, and see what Jesus says about what this whole thing is, what it's been about. Starting in verse 36, this is, of course, after the resurrection. 
the disciples are sharing stories about what they've seen and whether Christ really is raised from the dead. While they were telling these things, verse 36, he himself stood in their midst and said to them, peace be to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought that they were seeing a spirit. He said to them, why are you troubled? Why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. While they still could not believe it because of their joy and amazement, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it before them. And then he said to them, these are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. Behold, I'm sending forth the promise of my Father upon you, but you are to stay in the city, Jerusalem, until you're clothed with power from on high. Of course, Luke's next book, Acts, starts with that coming of the Holy Spirit, the power from that Holy Spirit to be witnesses. All right, let's talk about the man. That's where we need to start, the man. Of course, the Gospels, these Gospel accounts are about Jesus. When we think about the man, what comes to mind? What would you maybe list under the man as descriptions of Jesus? I would start with the fact that the man is a man. He really is a man. That's how the story starts. He was born. He was named. Yes, his name has theological significance. He's Jesus or God saves. But that was a common name. Jim or James. He's just a, a guy who's named. He grew. He was once 12. That's what we see in Luke chapter 2. He got left behind by mom and dad. So they left for another city. He hungered. He was tired. He eventually died a real death. He was a man. But he was no ordinary man. He was the anticipated one to come. Back in chapter 7 of Luke, remember John the Baptist sent his disciples to Jesus to ask Jesus, are you the one? Capital T, capital O, the one. Or should we wait for another? And Jesus says, I'm the one, essentially. He is the one, the one to come, the one that's been prophesied throughout the whole Old Testament, this building theme, starting with Genesis 3.15, that there would be a seed, an offspring of the woman, who would one day be the defeat of Satan, the defeat of sin in the world. He's no ordinary man. He's the one to come. He himself was born of a virgin, a star marked his birth. Kings from afar followed that star to come and pay homage to him. Simeon in the temple saw him and said, it's here, he came, I can now die. This is no ordinary guy. He's the son of David. He's the Christ, 
the Messiah. Christ isn't Jesus' last name. It's his title. He's the anointed one, the one sent from God. But not just anyone sent from God. Again, he's part of that Old Testament building theme. Not just the seed of the woman. He's the seed of Abraham. He's a prophet like Moses. He's the son of David, the eternal son of David, who will sit on David's throne perfectly, forever, and universally. He's the one. He's the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. He's the fulfillment of the whole Old Testament. Luke 24 told us this. In verse 44, the things written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms, a way of frequently talking about the whole Old Testament, the three parts of those books of the Bible. But he's not just one sent from God. He's not just a special prophet or even the biggest prophet. He's not just a king or even the biggest king. He was and is God. He's God. He's God in the flesh, which means he's truly man and truly God. He's completely man and completely God in one person. Two natures, both natures neither mixed nor diminished by the other. Is that fitting inside your brain yet? doesn't fit inside my brain. It sounds like either he had schizophrenia, two people, one person, one body, or, or really these are two different people, or these are two different things that one isn't really real. So either he's a spirit who has human-like appearance, or he's, he's a human who has divine-like abilities. And the gospel writers won't let us conclude either of those. He's both God and man. And proof that he was Messiah and God is shown in Luke in his miracles. Where his miracles aren't just neat tricks. But, but according to Luke, they're a sign that a new creation is coming. The age that was promised. Not just the one that was promised, but the age to come that was promised where heaven begins to kiss earth. It's come. His miracles are a hint that the curse is being defeated. His casting out of demons isn't just sympathy for those who are possessed by those demons, but it's a signal that the defeat of the demonic, of satanic, of sin itself, is coming. It's starting to be seen, it's starting to be visible, it's starting to be clear and demonstrable. His miracles are showing that he is God. His claims also show that he's God. His friends and his enemies both understand that his claims are claims for deity. The enemies of Jesus are very mad and very certain that what he's saying is blasphemous. So he's no good teacher. Either the response is worship by those who believe him, or it's kill him because he speaks blasphemy. Remember when they say, who are you to forgive sins? It's one thing to heal a guy. That's something. But for you to say, and your sins are forgiven, God alone forgives sins. 
And Jesus says, <clears throat> yep, you got it. That's exactly the point. Thank you. They get it. They think that it's blasphemous. Though. Remember C.S. Lewis's famous three options. Jesus is either liar or lunatic or what? Or Lord. And so you can also see he attests to being God by his worship. He's, he receives worship. Unlike the angels who say, oh, no, no, don't bow to me. I'm just one of you. I'm a created being. I worship him too. Jesus receives worship and encourages worship. And yet, this one to come, the son of David, the Christ, the fulfillment of God's plan, the whole Old Testament, God in the flesh, he's a friend of sinners. In Luke, it's stressed. He's a friend of sinners. He's a servant. He didn't come to be served like other kings. He came to serve. He came in humility. He came in suffering, to, to suffer in our place. He came to die the death that we deserved and to live the life we couldn't live. He came to die and be raised. And it's repeated, not just here at the end of the book, which is, of course, after he died. Remember, here it says Christ, of course, would have to suffer and rise again from the dead in the third day. Verse 46. This has been hinted at, little foreshadows here and there, earlier in Luke, and even explicitly said. Luke, more than the other gospel writers, has Jesus saying, I will die. I will die, and on the third day, I'll be raised. That's the man. How about the message? Secondly, the message. Well, to think about the message, let's go all the way back to page one of Luke. And I mean literally page one. Not chapter one, verse one. Before that, the title. My Bible says the gospel according to Luke. It doesn't say Luke's gospel. As if Luke invented it. Or as if there are four different gospels. There's one gospel with four different accounts. But it's the gospel. This book is about the gospel. Gospel means good news. This book is the announcement of the good news. A good news man with a good news mission. He came with this message. He came to tell us and make clear and demonstrate that we're sinners. That's the first step of Understanding the gospel is to understand our need. Luke, more than the other gospel writers, seems to stress response to the message. How will you respond to the message? And where it goes awry, where it's a rejection of that Jesus and that gospel message, is usually that people don't see their need. They think themselves to be righteous. They think themselves to be cleaned up. And Jesus' point throughout Luke is that we must recognize our need even if our sin and our need look cleaned up or look like the religious version of sin. There's a religious version of sin, pride, self-reliance, self-righteousness. And Jesus is pointing out that there is judgment coming for those who are known to be sinners and those 
who think themselves righteous. Sin, whether it's in its cleaned up version, religious version, or in its outright rebellious version, deserves judgment. But the means of being reconciled with God is spelled out. That's why Jesus going to the cross is so emphasized. You, you almost can't go a whole chapter without getting a hint about what this is all about. It's not just Jesus teaching and then an unfortunate death at the end. The mission is the cross. The cross is the key. And we're reconciled to God, according to Luke and the other writers, through a substitute sacrifice. Again, I already said it. He lived the life we should have lived, and he died to death. We should have died. And that can be ours through faith. And so, again, Luke stresses the response to this message over and over again. The response to this message, savingly so, is to repent and believe. To see our need and mourn our self-righteousness, whatever way we were trying to build ourselves up toward God. And believe that Christ is the answer. To believe, not only to believe it's true, what's called assent, but also to trust. To put our hope in that. And those who do it, according to Luke, are reconciled with God. They are in Christ's kingdom, a spiritual kingdom, not of this world where Christ is king. They're his children, the Father's children, like Jesus is. And they are to be about their father's work. Remember this concept in Luke that where fatherhood and childhood are talked about in Luke, it's not just relational, it's functional. Yes, it means that he's our daddy. Yes, it means that we're accepted, we're in the family, we get the inheritance, we get all the privileges of being his children. Yes, but remember in first century times, it was the norm that Sons did what their dads do occupationally. Not so today. Not, not, not very frequent at all today. But in those days, when you thought of sonship, you thought in part, in large part, of the functionality of sonship that you do what dad does. And so when we're called children in Scripture, it means be holy as your Father in heaven is holy. He's in the business of reconciliation. You be in the business of reconciliation. He loves sinners. You love sinners. You do what your father does. Let's not forget, we've called this series Righteous Sinners in the Gospel According to Luke. Let's not forget that in Luke, the righteous are the so-called righteous, those who think themselves to be righteous, even though they aren't because no one is. And the sinners, quote-unquote sinners in Luke, are those who are famously sinful, not least because society keeps reminding them that they're sinners, that they're in need, that they're in trouble, that if anyone's in trouble, they are. But according to Luke, sinners, even sinners like that, can be made righteous. Though, quote-unquote, righteous can be made truly righteous. They can exchange their fake, empty, self-made righteousness for the true righteousness of Christ. That's the message. As best I can summarize it in a few minutes. Third is the mission. What is the mission? 
I mean, what's our mission specifically? Uh, of course, the mission of Jesus is kind of falls into the category number two, the message. But what mission did he give his disciples? There's a lot of debate today, believe it or not, about what the mission of the church is. Basically, there's a fork in the road, and there are two different approaches. One is kind of a broad view of the mission of the church, includes a lot of things. And then a more narrow one, includes one thing primarily, with other things being, yes, stuff we do, but not part of the capital M mission. I agree with the narrow view on that. What that means is that there are some things that Christians should do that shouldn't be considered part of the capital M mission. Christians should engage culture rather than retreat, right? We believe that here. We don't pretend like we should get away to a commune and live alone and be purified and separate and holy and not in the world, but we should take light to the world. We should seek to transform the world in part. We should be involved in things like politics to God's glory, arts, education, care for the poor, loving our our neighbors on both a a micro level and a macro level, right? Love specific neighbors and love my city, love my community. But these things aren't necessarily, though they're good and important, not necessarily the capital M mission, according to Luke. The mission is proclamation of the gospel. It's speaking and pleading for people to believe that he died and was raised for the forgiveness of sins. I think there are a couple ways in which this is clearly shown. One of which we saw already at the end of Luke 24 that it ends with Jesus saying this, right? Look at verse 47. He says, repentance for forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name. Proclamation. Proclamation of a message of forgiveness, reconciliation. That should be proclaimed in the nation, in the nations, rather, so local and global. There are to be witnesses of these things. Again, Acts 1 tells us the Holy Spirit came and gave power. Power for what? Power to... Tear phone books in half for God's glory. Power to just be obnoxious. Power to be holy. Well, in part, yeah, but that's not what it says. It says power to be witnesses. You'll be my witnesses, Acts 1.8. And so there's something special about that capital M mission. All four gospel accounts end with the same kind of mission. Go and make disciples. Go and tell. Go and proclaim. Go and say these things to those who don't know them. They're famous last words. It's clearly the message Jesus wants to leave his disciples. And then if you thumb through Acts, what do you see? You see the early church in that book treating witness as central to their mission in the world. Yes, they care for the poor. Yes, I'm sure they seek the good of the community. Yes, it says that they had favor with those who were on the outside. They were liked in their community in a sense. But they're also hated at times 
persecuted at times. And why are they persecuted? Because they have a different approach to politics? Or they have a different approach to education in the community? Or they have a different approach to psychology or something? No, because they proclaim and won't stop proclaiming. He's the king. He's the savior. And if you don't believe, you'll perish. So there are no kingdom realities. There is no kingdom living without first entering the kingdom by the gospel. The gospel is the only means by which we make disciples and that the kingdom is enjoyed or known or experienced. The mission of the church is not to announce to the world that the kingdom is here without an announcement about how to enter the kingdom. And if it sounds like I'm splitting hairs, you have to understand this is hotly debated in, in seminaries and among pastors and pastors' conferences today. And you say, well, why don't you keep it there, Ryan? Why don't you keep it as a debate among pastors then? It's not where we live. It will be. That's the way it always works. It always trickles down to the street level. It always trickles down to a pew level. Have you ever heard the phrase? Not creeds, but deeds. How many of you heard that? Okay, I have. (laughs) It trickled down some, I guess, right? A few of you raised your hand. Well, it's a way of saying we should be about not what we believe, not not theory. We should be about serving and loving. And we should be about serving and loving. But you know what? The gospel in part is creed. It's belief. And there's no way of truly loving your neighbor without also loving them unto the gospel. Here's a good test case for what the capital M mission of the church is to be. It's to think about The purpose of Jesus' miracles. That's the test case. You see, miracles aren't capital M mission in Luke. The miracles confirm who Jesus is. They support what his message is. They validate what he's saying and what he's doing. They tell us who he is. The miracles tell us what he came to do. The miracles show us and illustrate the reality of the spiritual dilemma, right? So people are lame and we're spiritually lame. People are blind and we're spiritually blind. People are deaf and we're spiritually deaf. They're all pictures of conversion. They're all pointing to the cross. They're arrows. They're part of really those shadows of what the substance is in Christ. They're a hint of what now is here. But miracles don't by themselves save. He came to die, and that's what saves. So for us, there are all kinds of things that should surround our witness, that precede our witness. You know, you you love your neighbor before maybe you proclaim. There are things that should follow up your witness. So you proclaim, and then you don't just stop at that and say, well, I did my job. You know, you got the track. You got the little booklet about two cliffs and a cross in between and anyone can figure that out except I had a guy once say are you supposed to what's the thing in the middle the cross sticking up you have to jump over something no that's not the point you know (laughs) these things good things should surround our witness but I want us to hear that the witness is the central thing that Jesus left us with do we really believe that do we really believe that I mean, for us, 
Do we really believe that that's what Jesus left for us in the 21st century here in America in my life? I hope you do. Again, famous last words. I pray that we would be those who believe the Holy Spirit has come into our lives to bring power so that we witness. So it may mean you just need to move to the next step with someone in your life. Right? You don't steal at work. Good job. You know? You don't cuss in front of the neighbor unless it really hurts. You know, you hit your, your thumb with a hammer and, of course, then they'd understand. <laughs> Take it to the next step, whatever that is. It, it might mean you need to get to the specifics of the gospel, not just letting them know that you're religious or not just letting them know you go to church or, or not just letting them know that Jesus is good or some other kind of bumper sticker saying. Maybe you have to get to the specifics of sin and judgment and him in our place. What a bloody substitutionary sacrifice really means and what it looks like and how they must believe it or, or they'll perish. You say, well, I may lose a friend over that. You may gain their soul. You may have a friend in a way you, you don't currently have. And yeah, they may not like you. But we're really talking about sacrifice for the gospel in terms of I may lose a friend or I might feel weird at the family reunion. When the early church, I mean, they were losing limbs. They were losing heads. Let me also say related to just the gospels and how they function in our lives. The purpose of these four precious books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, isn't just for unbelievers to read and believe and be saved. And it's not just for us believers to see that there's a mission. It's also for us with an enduring purpose to see Christ over and over and over again. Do you know that most of the epistles were written first? Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. Those letters to churches were written usually before these gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Isn't that interesting? So they're talking about in these epistles who Jesus is and what it means for the church and how to conduct church life. And then later they piece together what was probably already oral history, disseminated among the churches already in a large way of who Jesus is, what what he did, the the miracles, the teachings. But later come these gospel accounts. They actually wrote them down later than the epistles. I think what that means, in part, is that yes, they're useful for unbelievers to read and see Jesus and believe and be saved. And yes, to encourage Christians that this is the message and mission that Jesus left us with. But I think there's also something important there for us to read Jesus, to see him, to see his love, to see his boldness, to see his compassion, his patience, to see his wrath, to see his sacrifice, to see it spelled out and to grow in loving him. So let me apply this to men. Be men of the book. Be men of this book. 
This is where we go to see him. This is where we go to grow in him. We're told at the end of 2 Peter, grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Are you growing in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ? Maybe you need to do just another step more of Bible study than what you're currently doing. I suppose some in here are spending a, you know, a couple hours a day or you're reading 15 chapters or something like that. And I would probably say to you, maybe you should do other things too. Okay, not just be a student of the Bible. There are other things he's called you to do. But most of us, especially the men, we're not men of the book. For many of us, maybe we pick up a proverb here or a psalm there. Or we have a devotional, the daily bread, which gives a part of a verse and gives some thoughts. And and if you're doing that, that's great. I'm glad you're doing that. But maybe just take it a step further. You say, okay, well, what's the step further? What else? What else would I, I don't know what the next step is. Tell me. Do you know you would make a pastor's day by calling this church and saying, here's what I'm currently doing for Bible intake. Will you tell me, maybe make some suggestions for a step further beyond? I mean, there are plenty of phone calls to the church that complain. You know, plenty of marriage problems going around, right? It's wonderful to get a phone call that says, can you just tell me how to read my Bible better? They fight over those phone calls here. Be men of the book. Be men who know the man, who love the man. Be men who love this Jesus, and your strength is modeled after his strength. He's a strong man. He's a man's man, isn't he? I know the, the, the pictures you've seen of Jesus with, you know, he's frail, he's 120 pounds soaking wet, and he's just come from the salon, apparently. His beard is freshly groomed. He's got a Billy Mays beard. That's not here in the Bible. We've got a Jesus who is a warrior. We've got a Jesus who's a prophet, who turns over tables, who's mad at what he should be mad about. And we're not supposed to be like him, just like him in every way. But he is a man's man, and we see masculinity in here that is both strong and humble, patient and loving, holy and friendly. Be, man of the man, of, be men of the man. Be men of the message. Be men who find their identity in the message. Not in anything else. Not ultimately in anything else. You might be the president of your company. You might be the best salesman in your job. You might be known in this community for this or for that. You might be the best soccer coach there is. Let your identity ultimately be one of being a man of the message, a sinner who knows nothing ultimately except Jesus' blood and righteousness for the forgiveness of sins on our behalf. Find your refuge in that message again and again and again, when tomorrow seems to crumble, when when life seems to just bend and break, find your hope, men, in this message. He died in your place. Your sins are forgiven. What can man do to us? And so be men of the mission. 
Be men who are bold to speak. Work on how to speak. Work on how to comfortably and normally get from everyday life to Jesus. Be men who are bold like Jesus was bold. Be men who are like the apostles, the early disciples who said, we cannot help but speak the things which we have heard and seen. May God give us as a church the grace to so know him and so see him in this word, to so taste and see that he is good, that we are quick to speak about him, quick to reflect on who he is in our lives and what it means that we boast in him. We'll we'll sing a song in just a minute that has that word boast. I love that, that we boast only in Christ. The word boast means that we would find our, our comfort in him, our joy in him, and we would proclaim him. All right, this is what we do when we boast. When we brag, we talk. When we brag, we're confident in it. When we're bragging, we're excited about it. Let's boast in Christ and Christ alone. Let's be a church of the man, of the message, and of the mission. Let me close with a, a longish quote which gives several helpful implications of these things we've been seeing in Luke. I posted this on the church blog a couple of weeks ago, but I keep going back to it. I've read it several times, and I, I, wanted, I wanted to put it in a message. And I also want to remind you that we have a church blog, in case you never go there. Uh, for the four of you who check it, bless you. But listen to this. Elise Fitzpatrick in an article called The Transforming Power of the Gospel, says this. Because of the incarnation, Jesus Christ knows exactly what it is to live in a sin-cursed world with people who break the rules, like me. I'm a rule breaker, but he's loved me, and he's experienced every trial I face. He's with me. He sympathizes with my weakness. This understanding of his love in the face of my sin drains my anger, at my rule-breaking neighbor. I can love her because I've been loved and I'm just like her. Because of his sinless love, I now have a perfect record of loving my neighbor. He perfectly loved rule-breakers. This record of perfect love for my rule-breaking neighbor is mine now. Knowing this relieves my guilt. Even though I continue to fail to love, his record is mine. Because of his substitutionary death, I'm completely forgiven of my sins. Even the sins that I seem to fall into at the slightest provocation, God has no wrath left for me because he poured it all out on his son. He's not disappointed or irritated. He welcomes me as a beloved daughter or son. Because of his resurrection and the justification it brings, I know the power of my sin and my life has been broken. Yes, I failed again, but I can have the courage to continue to fight sin because I'm no longer a slave to it. This replaces despair with faith to wage war against my selfishness and pride. Because of his ascension and reign, I know that this situation isn't a mere chance happening, whatever that situation is. He's orchestrated it so that I will remember him and, have, and be blessed by the gospel again. 
He's ruling over my life and interceding for me right now. I'm not a slave to chaos or chance. He's my sovereign king, and I can rest in his loving plan today and rejoice in him. And one more, and because of his promised return, I know that all the doubt, injustice, and struggle will one day come to an end. This line in the grocery store and my plans for dinner isn't all there is. There's the great good news of the gospel. I can go home now and share with my family and guests how Jesus met me at the grocery store and we can rejoice together in his work on our behalf. May these truths be known in our homes and loved in our hearts.